This podcast is for the brave hearts, the black sheep, the rebels. If you're willing to face your fears and optimize your time on this planet, you are among friends. This is the Aaron Evans Podcast. Hello and welcome back. You know when you meet someone and immediately your guard goes down and you can access deep thought-provoking conversations? Well, I met Dr. Sherry Walling and we started to talk about the process of writing a book and getting it published. Then I started to realize the depth of this woman. She's a best-selling author, yoga teacher, a clinical psychologist, a mental health advocate, among other things. I am over the moon to be sitting with Dr. Sherry Walling. Sherry, welcome to the show. It's delightful to be with you, Erin. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Sherry, give me a synopsis of who you are. Ooh, there's so many ways to answer that question, but... Professionally, I'm a clinical psychologist who supports the well-being of entrepreneurs and leaders. I'm also a circus artist and a mother and a lot of other things, as you mentioned. Nice. And how do circus and mental health come together for you? Yeah, there have been a variety of ways where I've been able to integrate movement into my practice. And I have come to see the centrality of expressive movement in mental health care, uh, something that I'm passionate about and talk about as often as I can with anyone who will listen. So for me, that began with integrating yoga into caring for people who were working through post-traumatic stress disorder. But more recently, I've been able to integrate my, my sort of newer love for circus into storytelling around mental health by creating an original circus show that's all about the experience that, of someone struggling with mental illness and addiction, and then ultimately losing that battle, and then uh, expressively sort of depicting how their family and community responds to their loss. So it's a really heavy topic, but it's a really beautiful show that uh, I produced for Mental Health Awareness Month in partnership with NAMI, the National Association for Mental Illness. And hopefully we'll have the chance to do it again in September, which is a, a month in which we uh, reflect on suicide prevention and suicide awareness. And how did this all come to be? Was it the, the mental health? Was it the yoga practice? What came first? That's such a good question. I mean, as a child, I was in my body, like all of us are before we're taught to sit still and be cognitive creatures. So I was a runner and I love to play outside and climb trees. And so in a way, I feel like I've been like doing circus antics my whole life. Um, but I became a clinical psychologist first and spent most of my 20s really focused on honing my intellectual skills, my cognitive processing, my writing, all of those great juicy adult abilities. And then in my personal life came into yoga as a way of you know managing stress and life and spirituality and did a deeper dive into that, became a yoga teacher training about 15 years ago and started to think about how to help people get into their bodies because especially with trauma, with grief, with all kinds of um, 
really deep human experiences, sometimes they're beyond our capacity to access through words. And so I wanted to give my clients and myself an another language of expression and another language of healing. Like, as you know, as probably many of the folks listening know, our emotional experiences are held in our bodies. And we are looking for ways to unlock and to express those experiences that sometimes we can't get to cognitively. We can't get to from our thinking. So we need to get to through breath, through movement, through motion, through expression. So that's what circus has become for me personally. And like all things, I somehow become a fan and then want to share it with everyone and want to invite everyone I know, come do the flying trapeze with me. It'll be great. <laughs> so, you know, there's that part when you found something that works for you, that you love, that's been supportive and has served you that you invite others into. And what I loved about what you just said is movement is such a big piece of integration and healing but your way to process is through the written word or one way that you process is through the written word. And you've recently written a book, your second book about grief. When and how did you decide to write it? Well, decision is an unfolding process with books. <laughs> so I, I wrote the book about the experience of losing my dad to esophageal cancer and my brother to suicide kind of right on top of each other. They died six months to the day apart. So I was in this kind of world of chemotherapy and cancer treatments and this intervention and that intervention and supporting my parents and also watching my brother slide into more addiction. And it, so it was sort of this 18 month period of unraveling, ending in death for both of them. And I started writing right after my dad was diagnosed with cancer, he started writing too. He wrote on sharing bridge with which many, you know, family members or cancer people who are battling cancer do. They find comfort in being able to write and express and tell their story. So it doesn't feel so alone and isolating. So I started writing and didn't intend to write a book so much as I knew that's what I needed to do. But because of the nature of my work and who I am, I would find that little paragraphs that I've written may, you know, I would think of them in conversation with someone and I would send them, can I send you this thing that I wrote? It might be helpful to you as you are sitting with your mom who was just diagnosed with breast cancer. Like I'm, I'm right there with you. Here's this thing I wrote. Can I send it? And I did that kind of a lot. And I was also writing a lot. So I realized I've got 50,000 words. Like I have a book here. Uh, so I knew that it was enough material but then I was able to, I went to a, a memoir writing workshop and connected with a woman who had a similar experience to me, had lost her brother to suicide and also had a dad battling cancer. So we were like, whoa, parallel life. But she really loved the book and became its early advocate and helped me to connect with an agent who helped me to connect with a publisher. And uh, that's kind of how the book came to be. But I didn't start out thinking, I want to write a book about this. This will, you know, this is the area of thought leadership that I want to own. It, it, it just kind of happened a little bit. And then I had some wonderful advocates. Mm -hmm. And with the written word, what I find so interesting is it's almost like a fishing mission. 
you sit down and you're like diving deep into your experiences and you're looking for those poetic anecdotal things that can lift one up in those dark moments. What transformed in you while you wrote the book through your pain? I really saw so much beauty in what I was experiencing. And I would write every day or every couple days. And I would write about the moments where my breath was taken, you know, like the, where you, where you suck in and you can't quite breathe. And so sometimes those moments were deeply painful. And sometimes those moments were beautiful. They were about ways that someone helped me or helped my brother or my father. They were about the beauty of watching my children play and seeing their lives beginning, even knowing that these other lives were ending. So there were, the moments, the way that the book kind of reflected my experience back to me was in the fullness of the story around both darkness and pain and also so much beauty and provision. You are making me tear up. What do you hope to transform in the reader? I think the continuation of that message is the assurance that you can enter the full, dark, scary, shadowy places of death, of trauma, of painful experiences. You can be in them. You can be present. You can be fully there and feel all that goes there and also be in joy and in beauty and fully alive and hopeful and engaged. So my book is called Touching Two Worlds because I, I play so much with going back and forth between these two lands and getting comfortable moving between life and death, between grief and hope, between you know the dualities that exist on the edges of all of our lives but sometimes we i think have to tell ourselves that we we only want to live in the happy spectrum we only want to live in bliss and i don't i didn't find that to be true but i also didn't find that i got stuck in the shadow i could move back and forth and i want people to know that and to feel more confident and more comfortable in experiencing the full range of what's presented in their lives yeah and they belong together, right? Joy and pain, hope and doubt. We can't experience one without the other. What is your next uh, evolution? So you've, you've been processing this grief. I think on a personal level, this is a season of openness and going big. So it's one thing to have these experiences in the intimacy of my own mind and heart. And it's another thing to present them to my community, to my friends, to the larger audience. And so the mental work for me right now is being grounded in my own experience, holding that, but then also being brave enough to offer it to the world around me which may experience it and see it quite differently than me. So it's this another duality of both and of knowing my truth and also creating space for people to respond to it within their truth, which, you know, I might always agree with or resonate with. And because you have such a, an experience of grief, you work in mental health and then you actually have to go through it. 
was what you knew intellectually the same as what the experience was? There were lots of unlearnings and new learnings for me. The primary one really is, as we mentioned, is the, the centrality of movement. I was in therapy while this was happening. At different times, I worked with different medicines. Um, but I came to such a new understanding of what was necessary to really fully embrace the grief process. But I also, as a psychologist, I'm sort of trained to to sniff out pathology. And grief is not pathology, right? Grief is like a love letter. Like it's an expression that is beautiful and important. And so I really understood that very differently. Of course, people get stuck in grief and in trauma. And I don't like people shouldn't feel stuck in these emotions. Like I don't minimize the pain of them or just say grief is great for everybody. Cause I, I know that there's nuance there, but I really first and foremost came to see grief, not as pathology, but as, but as love. And then secondly, I knew that I needed movement. And then thirdly, some of my newer experiences real were to sort of dive into some of the science and clinical wisdom around psychedelic supported therapies, which was not a field that I was deeply interested in before, but I was super frustrated with the limits of the mental health care system as they related to my brother's journey. And then in my own grief healing felt like I needed something that was physical, biologically based, also had some spiritual openness and could help me dive into some existential pieces. And that also involved a supportive therapist and sort of the presence of words and conversation. So, you know, I took quite a few left turns in my professional experience of grief as I was like, I need something different than this. And they often say you can only take your clients as deep as you're willing to go. And this experience for you opened the lens of maybe therapy in terms of medicines. You mentioned spiritual openness. What do you mean by that? So I grew up in a very religious family and I actually have a master's in theology, like spirituality and religion have been part of my life, you know, from the very beginning. One of the challenges of traditional psychology as it's practiced is that it can be quite segmented from mystery or spirituality, it can be focused on sort of the science of thinking and emotion. And I don't say this as a critique, I just say it as it wasn't quite enough for what I needed. But I had to grapple with the questions of existence, right? Life and death, what happens after life or, or life ends rather, like, is my dad watching out for me? That's what people will say. Oh, your dad's watching out. I, I don't know. That doesn't, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sit in my soul. But what does? I have to like then ask the question, okay, I don't think like he's up there somewhere, like just eavesdropping. Like, so where do where is he? And why does it matter that he exists somewhere? So these are these are spiritual questions. They're philosophical, existential questions. But for me, they are at the core spiritual questions. And I needed a a process that would support me in grappling with them. Um, and I felt like, you know, psychedelic support therapy was really helpful. I, I also, again, the movement practice of mystery, of having a way of expressing what is unknown or not nicely packaged in a thought or words uh, was super helpful. 
And what would be the answer if Papa's not eavesdropping or watching over you? What have you come to settle on in your soul? Well, I've come to believe that I don't have to settle. I've come to believe that it's an emerging answer to the question. But in the the week that my dad was dying, I went to yoga every day. It was I went sometimes in the morning and the night. Like it was just I was with him all night as he was struggling to breathe and I was with him in the day like helping my mom, you know, just it's work. It's work to be with someone who's ending their life. And but yoga was my sort of respite. It was the time I anchored myself. And that week I was so aware of how my own body carries his body. Like my shoulders, I've got these big muscular broad shoulders straight from my dad. My eyes, I have my dad's eyes. So there are pieces of my body and me that are from him. And so that's the one thing I know (laughs) that I feel his cells in my cells and in the weird habits that I have, the fact that I'm a morning person, the fact that, you know, I'm, I love dogs. They're just the things about me that you see the through line from him. And so I don't know where he is, except that I know he's in me and my cells and my day-to-day life. And that's enough for right now. Maybe I'll have a different question about it later, but that's all I need for this moment. I wonder if you have your father's eyes, I have my mother's eyes. Do you think you see the world as he saw the world or is it just the color of the eye? (laughs) My dad was like a Republican Trump supporter. So (laughs) we've come to see the world differently. (laughs) Um, but I do know that we love some of the things, like we've loved mountains, we love lakes, like we see beauty in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's definitely been some departure. <laughs> so maybe my, my study is incorrect that when you share eyes, you share same sight. Well, we don't share same opinions. <laughs> what was the hardest part about writing the book? Some of the experiences that I wrote about in the book are one, pretty traumatic, are two, just really painful to me, to my mother, Um, more so around my brother's suicide. I think writing about the loss of someone to cancer, there's a lot of sweetness, like, I mean, not sweetness in the cancer, but um, suicide is a, a grittier, traumatic, violent death. And I think one of the worst moments of my life was, you know, calling my mom after my brother's first serious suicide attempt and, and needing to tell her what happened. And I just, it just made me sick when it happened. It made me sick to write about it. I think it's an important moment in my life and it's an important one to share because I, People don't realize the details that go into those stories, right? At some point, some doctor calls you and says, okay, your brother has stabbed a knife through his throat and I have to then call my mom. And it's like, oh my God. Um, So I had to be really careful, honestly, about what got put in the book 
I did it really thoughtfully because I no, there's no need to re-traumatize other people. And there's definitely a desire not to re-traumatize my mother, but there's also a desire to tell the story as truly and accurately as it is. So I think those are some of the trickier things. Also, the desire for the book is not just to tell my story, but to tell it in a way that's helpful. And that took the tempering of time. So I kind of wrote my story and then two years later came back and added more reflections on the things that I did that were helpful. So living one's own story and then trying to make it applicable to others is its own sort of dance. Um, so that, that was a, that was a hard nuanced part of it. Mm-hmm. How, if your dad lives on in your amazing shoulders and your amazing eyes, I listeners, I can't wait for you to see these eyes. How does your brother live on? Oh, so my brother, <laughs> my brother shares my just like love of motion and risk taking and natural beauty. So his ashes are actually, some of his ashes are in the the lake across the street from my house where I live. So every time I see the lake, I think of him. He would spend hours like floating around on the paddleboard. Um, And my brother loved the mountains. He spent most of his life in Montana or his adult life in Montana and worked ski lifts and uh, worked in Big Sky, lived in West Glacier near Glacier National Park. So Anytime I see a mountain or some like breathtaking piece of natural scenery, I think of him. Um, so maybe he and I see the world in similar ways. <laughs> like, we, ha- again, we love the same things. Does he have those eyes? Did he have those eyes? He does have blue eyes. His are more bright blue. They're like my mom's eyes. I mean, he had, we just, we're a good looking eye family. We, you, you know, we got a lot of health problems, but we've got good eyes. So we'll take it. <laughs> so my eyes are a little more green. They're more like my dad's, but he had my mom's eyes, which are still very sparkly blue. What advice would you give someone in the throes of grief? It's not popular advice, but my advice would be present to it. We have a pretty messed up relationship with grief in our culture, right? People get like one or two days of bereavement leave when a parent dies, which is just like ugh, unbelievable to me. And it there's so much messaging around get over it. I mean, it just... we get told that in all kinds of ways through the platitudes through the oh they're in a better place now she lives on in you blah 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 everything happens for a reason like (sighs) and all of those messaging i think is sort of designed to keep us really detached from our grief and so someone who's in the middle of it like i i appreciate how painful the thing i'm telling you to do is but it's to be present to every place that it hurts and let your body feel it, let your soul feel it, knowing that you have within you the ability to go in and through and that there is deep beauty in this love experience, even if you don't fully recognize it now. Mm. Perfectly put. Who inspires you? Well, of course, all the circus artists, but um, 
I really, I was grateful for Joan Didion's writing, particularly around grief. Um, she's such a terse writer, like no nonsense, no flowery like language. So I was, I was grateful for her work. I also re really have been grateful and inspired by poetry during this season of my life. So I read a lot of Mary Oliver, a lot of Rupi Kerr, just these little bite-sized, like sort of, I sometimes, in my book, I talk about it as tapas for the soul. Like, it's just like a little bite-sized meal that keeps you going. Um, but it's, you don't, you don't have to do the deep dive into like a three-hour reading. You can just like, three minutes. And so I would take, when I was sitting in the hospital, like visiting my brother in different places, I would just throw a poetry book in my bag and know that like, I could get a little soul nourishment with a couple minutes glancing through a few poems. So that inspires me, the ability to, that, that poets can use words in ways that fuel us um, simply and profoundly and, and frankly, quite quickly. What has been a mistake that turned into a wonderful learning or an evolution for you? I think as it relates to this story, there were lots of mistakes and lots of unknowns. So mostly as they related to my brother's care, my, my brother, um, really started to struggle with addiction and depression when my dad was diagnosed. And I, so one story in particular, um, he had a, a series of like accidents and probably some parasuicidal behavior, all of these instances in which he ended up continually in the emergency room. And I advocated to a judge that he be detained in the hospital against his will, which is a pretty ballsy, heavy intervention. I don't know if that was the right decision, right? My intention was to try to keep him in a place where he was safe long enough to try to figure out what was going on. I didn't, I I didn't know if he had a brain injury. Like there was a series of strange things and I just didn't quite know how to understand it. So I thought if we could keep him in the hospital, um, maybe we could figure it out. And I don't know if that was the right thing to do. I did, after advocating for him to be in the hospital, I then advocated for him to be released so that he could go back to California and be with my dad when my dad died. Mm -hmm. So my brother was present for my dad's death. And once again, that may have been too much for him because he declined very significantly right afterwards. So all of these things that I did to try to be helpful I don't know if any of them were the right decision. I don't even know. I don't know if they were mistakes. I don't know if they were loving. Like there's just no, um, no way to land on how to label those actions. And so my learning, if anything, in those mistakes or maybe not mistakes has just been to be so gentle with myself about trying to be helpful and loving the best I could with what I knew in the moment. Mm. And so I think when somebody dies by suicide, there's a lot of work that their family does around like, what did, like, how could I have prevented this? What actions could I have taken? Like, the, it's just an inevitable line that you go through in your thinking process. And my big 
forget my greatest act maybe of my own mental health has been to just be really soft mm-hmm. with those moments and not not think about them, not overthink it, you mm-hmm. know, just kind of like forgive myself for not knowing or not being able to act perfectly. Well, and also it's almost an expression of reparenting your brother or what would share what would be in Sherry's best interest and the likelihood is you made the call based on what's the highest good right now. And totally. I don't know where you fall on the birth order, but it, it it's a protective I fucking love you so much and this is my act of of supporting. And, and we never yeah. know why we do. We just have to trust that it's driven by a good impulse. Notice to the listener that, that Sherry says death by suicide. I think that's a really important thing to articulate instead of uh, they committed suicide. And tell me why that's the language. I think the the term committed, and I probably do use it sometimes still, so it's okay if people still use the term, but the term committed is sort of like they committed murder, right? It's very, um, the, the person who died is the actor. They're the agent of action. They committed this. And suicide is rough because of how it brings up all of our uncertainties around choice. And when we say died by suicide, it at least is neutral language. It honors the fact that, you know, a healthy person doesn't just wake up one day and decide I'm going to kill myself just to sort of like screw everybody else. Um, That when someone dies in this way, there's a confluence of factors, often mental illness, depression, there's often addiction components, there's a series of heartaches and heartbreaks that really do create a lack of health, right? It's when my dad died of cancer and you can like see the tumor on the scan, right? It's like, oh, that, that tumor right there, that motherfucker is going to kill you with depression or addiction. It's, you can't see it on a scan. And so we kind of think, oh, they're sort of choosing that, but the biology of a addiction and mental illness is not that different from cancer, right? The cells are broken. They are in disarray. Things are not functioning as they are supposed to. And so when we use language that honors that this is how someone died, it kind of takes the blame and shame and they did this out of the story and honors, oh, something was deeply broken and this was the outcome. Mm. Have you always been so poised and graceful? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I say like, ah! <laughs> um, I have been talking about hard things professionally my entire career. And this is in my first rodeo with hard things, right? So. I've always loved language. I've always found it to be deeply honoring to be a speaker, you know, to have an invitation to share my perspective. So, yeah, I think it's one of the gifts that I come to my work with, which is a general sense of calm, um, even in pretty high intensity situations. Yeah. Do you thrive in high intensity? 
Um, I had a therapist that once accused me of being a chaos junkie, so probably. I mean, circus, trapeze, all that stuff is for the, the risk taker, the adrenaline junkie, the flow state seeker. Yeah, so beautiful. And and tell me, what is the why that drives you? The why that makes you want to cry? I want for people and for myself to deeply know the beauty of their lives. That's it. Despite all the bullshit and all the mess, like... Yeah. Mic drop. Sherry, you are so outstanding. I could listen to you speak all day there. Your voice is like silk and your timing and your cadence is like poetry. When and how do we get our hands on your book? You're making me blush. Um, the book will be available to the world on July 26th. And there's an audio version if you like my voice. <laughs> so that, that that's a choice. Um, excuse me. And it, it's available really where all, all books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstore down the street. Don't forget about them. Um, and it's available in all of the forms, in, in audio and digital and in three-dimensional, get-your-fingers-in-the-pages version. Awesome. And where can people find you? So for more about this book and this project and the circus elements of it, uh, Touching Two Worlds is kind of where this book lives, touchingtwoworlds.com. And then for folks who are interested in more broadly in my work and in my speaking work or my podcast, uh, you can find that information at sherrywalling.com. Amazing. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. And any parting words you want to leave the listener with? I'm just so grateful for the conversation. Thank you, Erin. Yeah, thank you. It was touching. Two worlds. <laughs> <laughs> All the worlds. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, thank you. Just give me two moments.